Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, trust in you're all getting ready for Christmas okay, as I'm sure there's a lot of shopping to get done. Uh, so glad to have you here to worship with us. And we're going to continue our series in David. Uh, we're on part seven today. And to start off, we're going to read Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahiah, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw the king, King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. A few years ago, Holly and I took a trip out to Buffalo for me to get an expedited passport. And while we were there, we decided to visit Niagara Falls. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the background of the falls, uh, they consist of three waterfalls altogether. The Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side, uh, the American Falls, and the Bridal Veil Falls, which at its peak is 176 feet high. Uh, four of the five Great Lakes, uh, such as Superior, Michigan, Huron, and Erie, fill into these falls before it empties into Lake Ontario. Altogether, these five great lakes take up one-fifth of the world's fresh water supply. Now, typically, the water flow of the falls is 3,160 tons per second. But during its peak season, which we happen to be there for, it could go up to 700,000 gallons of water per second. I remember stepping onto one of the decks to look at the falls and hearing the water thunder so loudly that we could barely hear ourselves breathe. All you could hear was, shh. 
I got within uh, 10 feet of the railing before I said to Holly, that's enough for now. And yet, even from where we were, uh, water was gushing all around us. You can feel the deck rumbling. And this strange feeling came over me, where from one standpoint, I was scared to death. With Holly's help, I eventually tiptoed to about three to five feet away from the railing with great caution, though, and kind of making sure that every step I took, the ground didn't fall from underneath me. And yet there was another side of me that was amazed at how beautiful these falls were cascading down into the river. One of the most terrifying and yet exhilarating experiences of my life. And yet I couldn't help but notice that there's these yellow signs all over that said, don't hang on the rails. I thought to myself, what kind of idiot would ever do that? Until I saw them. People who were a lot more comfortable than me being there. They got their selfie sticks out to get as close to the rail as possible to take a picture. They were doing poses and, and goofing off like nothing was going on around them at all. I remember one couple who were literally standing on the rails and waving their arms around like they're on the Titanic, having a great time. It's awful to think this, but I thought to myself, that's how dumb accidents typically happen. But seriously, why is it that often the same experiences elicit a different response? How can people be looking at the same thing, yet come away with completely different reactions? I leave there thinking, I might die, while others seem completely unfazed. Maybe they've, they're experienced junkies who love hanging off the side of a cliff and near-death experiences. Or locals who have seen the fall so often that it's become normal to them. It's very likely, though, at, at, though at one time, whether here or at another attraction, they felt just as amazed. And when you come across experiences like that, especially in creation, Scripture tells us that it points to our Creator. Romans 1 tells us that God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature is seen plainly throughout all, all creation. Meaning that overwhelming sensation that comes over you when you see things like Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon, our star-filled night, or mountains speak to the wonder and power of God. Every time you feel like a tiny speck in the universe, you become in contact with something that makes you sense your mortality. You get a glimpse of standing before the Almighty. But let me ask you, how often do you connect fear and amazement with experiencing the presence of God? Oftentimes when we think of being surrounded by God's presence, we think of being surrounded by His love and, and the comfort of knowing He's there to walk us through everything, which is true. And yet the Bible also tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, the fear of God is mentioned roughly 300 times in Scripture. All that to say, as loving and gracious and faithful as God is, He's also holy, different, otherworldly, 
There is something about him that makes us stop in our tracks. And like the angels of heaven, our soul cries out, holy, 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 because there is no one like him. And those who know him best, along with loving him, will reverently fear him. I would go as far as to say it's to gauge to see how close we truly are to the Lord at all. Or it reveals how we've lost the sense of awe for him that makes him appear far too normal to us. In fact, as we see today, it is only when we see the holiness of God that we begin to worship. A lot has happened up to this point in David's life. He's no longer on the run. God has brought judgment on the house of Saul, who dies along with Jonathan in battle. The nation is divided for a while about who should rule now. Saul still had an heir, though, who tried to seize the throne. But the tribe of Judah chose David. Yet 2 Samuel 5 tells us that finally at the age of 30, David is the undisputed king of Israel. Now, remember, we've said all along that David was made for this job. He's a natural-born leader, a warrior, brave, intelligent. Oh yeah, on top of that, he happens to be a poet, magician, or musician, an incredible godly man. One of those people who's so ridiculously gifted that it makes you feel like you've done absolutely nothing with your life. He's almost too, too, too good to be true. And yet he even realized that there's no way he could possibly lead Israel without God's help, it would prove to be the hardest challenge of his life. And he wanted the security of knowing that God would be with him. The one theme we've seen throughout this series so far is that God's presence resulted in peace and blessing in a person's life, not in a prosperity gospel kind of way that denies they ever face trials but rather in spite of the trials and hardships they face, that person and those close to them experience God's provision as he worked both in and through that individual. And so his first major event as king was to bring the ark to the capital. And the two things we see through it is that God's holiness reveals the gap between us and him. And second, to lift God up, You must come down low. A little background on the Ark will help us understand uh, what's going on here. As you can see, the Ark of the Covenant was a chest overlaid with gold. And it had a cover on it that had two angels called cherubim on each end of it, facing each other with their rings spread out to cover, to spread over the cover. And where their wings touched in the middle was considered the throne of God where his presence would be. See, the ark was typically kept in the most sacred section of the tabernacle, the holies of holies, or the most holy place. And at that, only one person once a year was ever allowed to go into it, the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, or what we know today as Yom Kippur, the priest would go into into it on behalf of himself and the people to offer sacrifices to atone for their sins and then sprinkle some of the blood of that sacrifice on the cover of the ark, almost like a direct petition to God. It symbolized coming to the very throne of God itself 
to intercede on behalf of himself and the people. And it was to be taken seriously. But at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we're told that the ark was captured when the Israelites brought it into battle against the Philistines. And when it was eventually sent back to Israel, that it stayed in a man's house named Abinadab for the last 20 years. On that day that David comes to bring the ark to Jerusalem, picture this massive crowd of people. Verse 1 tells us that alone there were 30,000 soldiers. This doesn't count the other officials, civil leaders, elders, and the band he had here as well. This was more like a parade after a victory in battle. I know it's been a while since it's felt like this, but when processions were done in the past before an inauguration, it had this uniting feeling to it. It was something that would brought that brought the nation together as crowds of people would follow the outgoing president and the president-elect to the Capitol in anticipation of what's to come. This moment in Israel had that same feel to it. They're looking forward to a brighter future. Everyone understood the ark symbolized God's presence. And to have the presence of God at the very heart of their nation would bring the blessing and protection they longed for. They'd just gone through 40 years of being led by a man in Saul who was losing his mind. In my senior year, I got a new coach for basketball who was uh, taking over for a man who had been the coach at our school for decades. And they had completely different temperaments. The one who left was more even-keeled until he needed to get in your face and let you know to knock it off. Whereas this coach came in blazing hot. At first, you can understand him trying to establish his own identity and set a tone, which wasn't a big deal playing football. I was exposed to much worse. But then it got to a point where he was never happy and made playing basketball miserable. In fact, I can't remember a time my last year of basketball that enjoyed any of it. But looking back, I could tell that something had to be going on in my coach's life. When any leader in your life, whether it's a coach, a parent, or a boss, is crumbling inside, inevitably it trickles down to you. See, the nation was looking forward to having God's hand on them again. In a sense that they, their true king from on high was coming to sit on his throne among them. And the people are ready to explode with excitement. It just seemed like the perfect day. Everything was going on without a hitch. But as the ark was being led before them on a cart dragged by two oxen, they weren't expecting the ground to dip as they came to Nacon's threshing floor. And they stumbled. So Uzzah, one of the men helping to lead the oxen, did what any rational person would do. He, he reached out to keep the ark from falling. But verse 7 tells us, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. What just happened? Wasn't Uzzah doing a good thing? It seems like he's just doing his job here, so what is this about? Isn't this a little extreme? Yet there are other passages like this in Scripture that are hard to understand. 
where God seems to have an anger management problem or split personality, where he flies off the rail at any given moment, leaving people to wonder which person are they going to get this time around. And it could lead to the extreme of either wondering, why would anyone want to follow or believe a God like that at all? who seems to relish condemning people almost like we're ants and he's the kid trying to burn us with the magnifying glass. Or maybe to cope, people will say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament is far more kinder than him. But I would say both options aren't the way to go. Because when you look at these difficult passages more closely, you see the details. For instance, in Leviticus 10, the high priest, Aaron, had uh, two sons who offered unauthorized fire to God and were consumed by that fire. Verses 8 through 9 seems to imply why they did this and why they were judged so severely when it says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drinks whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. God gave them a position of representing him before his people, and they made a joke of it. See, it's one thing to break the rules. It's another thing to take God lightly. That's why he says in verse 3, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. For those who would say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament, like we said before. Ananias and Sapphira were judged in a similar way. In Acts 5, when the church is at the grassroot level here, many of its members were selling their property to help each other out. No one was being forced or commanded to do it. It was kind of just seen as a gesture of love. Yet these two, apparently feeling guilty for not helping out, sold one of their properties but decided to hold some of the money back, which they were free to do. The only problem is they wanted to look like they were being just as generous as everyone else. And so they came to church claiming they were giving the full price of their sale. And yet Paul, the apostle more so Peter, says in, in Acts 5, 3 through 4, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. The issue there and here with David is they fail to approach God for who he is. He's not just a man. He's not like anyone else. Nothing in the universe can compare to him. No creation, no ruler. There is no God beside him. The people of Israel, albeit to an extreme, were raised to see the transcendence of God. God's personal name, Yahweh, was not even mentioned directly for fear of dishonoring him. At Mount Sinai, the people fearing and trembling at the presence of God who came in a dark cloud and thunder asked David to be the intercessor for, for fear of dying 
in the presence of the Almighty. The mere sight of him terrified them. The prophet Isaiah realized the same thing when he saw God's glory in a vision and said, Woe to me, and I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Why did he say this? Because when you stand in the presence of one who transcends all, who's otherworldly, who's perfect in every way, you can't help but see the cracks in your foundation, that you fall short of the glory of God. One of my favorite shows when it first came out was Undercover Boss, because I love the idea of a CEO of a business uh, being willing to take off his suit and tie to see firsthand how his employees are doing and how people felt working there. And of course, the best moments, at least in my opinion, are when the employees who are down and out transparently, although I'm sure it was scripted, share their stories with someone they have no idea who can completely change their circumstances. There's a pureness to it that makes you root for that person. On the other hand, the parts of the show that made me cringe was when employees would be caught by their boss, take advantage, taking advantage of the company or abusing their privileges. They're rude to the people who work under them. They cut corners or, or unethical. You almost find yourself getting so emotionally invested in the show that you start thinking, who are they that think they, they can get away with that? There's a way to approach God that diminishes his greatness in our lives. Sometimes a person innocently starts coming back to church, hoping to save their marriage or to put back the pieces of their lives, their fractured lives. Things have been so difficult that they didn't know where else to go, which if that's true for you, we are so glad you're here with us today. God wants you here, but he doesn't want his relationship with you to stay there. Because if it does, and it's true for anyone here today, we may start to barter with God. We say, God, if you save my marriage, I'll give you an hour and a half each Sunday at church. Or if you help me get this promotion, I promise I'll start tithing. If you get rid of this difficult person in my life, I'll finally start serving you. You have my word. Or even worse, you start thinking God owes you when things don't go your way. That's what happened to David. Verse eight says, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez, Uzzah. David was angry because he was convinced he had done everything the right way here. And he deserved better than this. He had given God the honor he was due with this parade and celebration claiming God All this is for you. What else do you want? When the truth is, it was for him. All the pomp and circumstance means nothing because this was David's moment, not God's. He got so fixated on getting the blessing from the ark being in Jerusalem that he didn't take the time to make sure he consulted God. 
And God rebukes him here in the strongest way to remind him that even though he's the king of Israel now, he still serves God Almighty. And we should never think we're not susceptible to the same. Here's a man who for years had walked with God in the most personal way, who God himself deemed a man after his own heart, yet he got blinded by what he can get from God so much that he lost sight of who God is to him. Some of the most bitter people I've seen throughout ministry are those who, when suffering comes, reveal that they've been keeping a balance against God, that they've been listing all the things they've done for God and yet all the ways he slighted them. And they can come in two forms. One is the person who has lived a comfortable life. They've never struggled financially. They've never had marital or parental issues. In many ways, they've lived a very charmed life and who may be fooled to believe that because they've done everything the right way, that's why they're so blessed. Look, praise God if that's the case for you, but you need to realize just as much as anyone else that you are a product of grace. Yes, he worked in accordance with you making good decisions in your life, but there is nothing you can do to earn it. Everything you have is from the good hand of the Lord. Just hold on because Jesus promised in this life, there's gonna be some troubles too. Because on the flip side of this, there are those who have lost everything. Yes, they've had momentary success, but it's quickly been snuffed out. And angry, they can't understand how God could let this happen to them. They also have done all the right things. They were the diligent spouse or mother, and yet there were things way beyond their control. We can't control the people who break our hearts. We can't control when our job downsizes. Often we can't control when an overwhelming amount of circumstances crashes in on us and we fall apart. We can't control sickness. And when suffering comes, you learn whether a person is putting their trust in God or their goodness. Let me tell you something. It's a lot easier to do the latter than you think. Look, I'm not saying this in a way to belittle the suffering we may go through or the initial shock of going through something devastating. We patiently hold each other up in those times, not condemn each other. But if we linger there, we may get to the point where we stiffen our necks against God and then we're entering a dangerous place. Because at the end of the day, who we are, who are we more so to ever think we're in a position to put God on trial, to think he owes us? Yes, there are questions in life that we will never have all the answers to this side of eternity. Some very hard questions, as Pastor Tim mentioned last week. We don't ignore that. But we also don't ignore who God is as we struggle with those questions and trials. I have never seen anything good come from a person's life who tries to keep tabs on God because they often have to do it at the expense of forgetting or never realizing the debt of sin they owe him. As Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
And until we see God for who he is, we will never truly worship him because we fail to see the gap between us and him. Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel? Uh, speaks of how most people see God more as a grandfather than for God himself when he writes this illustration. Let me introduce you to God. That's with a lowercase g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleepy now. He's old, you know, and doesn't understand or like this modern world. His golden days, the one he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though. And God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he's spending most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him. And there we tarry, walking and talking softly and, and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. You'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to. You know, the best thing about him, though, he doesn't judge me ever for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wished I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that. But he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job, is what he does. After all, he loves, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. That I wouldn't have him any other way. All right. Hold on a second. Okay, we can go in now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long. Really, he's grateful for any time we can get, or he can get. That's a little extreme, but you get the point. Sometimes, even though we've been saved for years, we forget the reality of the gospel and how we approach God. We become presumptuous. You didn't get where you are by keeping all the rules, but by the grace of God. God will only be approached on his terms. He is holy, and he is ready to pour out his grace on anyone who would receive it. As biblical commentator Alan Redpath put it, to be slain by the hand of God's judgment within reach of privilege and fellowship is the greatest disaster that can happen to anyone. God's holiness reveals the gap between us and him. And that's critical to worship because to lift God up, you must come down low. We see David moving in that direction in verse 10, where it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? 
The first step to experiencing God's presence in our lives, either for the first time or again, is letting go of any notion that we can close the gap between us and God. The gospel tells us that whether you're a Bible-believing person who has kept all the rules or you've lived a checkered past and burned so many bridges, you need God's grace. You can't earn it by coming to church or trying to live more uprightly. Nothing in your strength will be good enough to bridge the gap between you and holy God. And you don't have to. Verse 13 tells us, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, meaning David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. We said this before. The ark not only shows us the gap between us and God, but also his provision. God made a way through the mercy seat to receive the payment for our sins. And every animal they slaughtered was a perpetual reminder that they still had a sin problem. That they would need more than the blood of bulls and goats to save them. Yet it was also pointing to the way that God would once and for all redeem us. By sending his son to be the spotless lamb and the perfect sacrifice for our sins. John 1.29 says of him, The next day John, John the Baptist that is, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.12 adds, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. When a person humbles themselves and repents, coming low to receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus, their sins will be atoned for, and they will be saved. From that day forward, Hebrew 10 tells us we can come to God with a free conscience, trusting that we are accepted and welcomed by God. Some of us simply need to be reminded this morning that we are His by the mercy of God. And maybe we've gotten off track. Maybe that is the case. But we believe that when God truly grabs a hold of a person's heart by the power of his Holy Spirit, they are his and they can never stop being his because he will pursue them. And so maybe today, like the prodigal son, your heart has grown cold. For whatever reason, you have resisted God's voice in your life. You have chosen to go your own way instead of his. And because of that, You're in the pig pen, trying to figure out where to go from here. Listen to me. You need to remember the goodness of your Father in heaven and run to Him. There is no sin too great nor gap too wide for God to not be able to close through Jesus Christ. A gospel-believing person not only knows the gospel, but has experienced it. God closed the gap and draws near to them. And so they live in grace, keenly aware of God's provision through Jesus. They live humbly more so under the security and power of God's love. And when you feel the weight of that, where you are free from condemnation, you can truly worship. Notice how David intentionally honored God here this second time around with the ark. First Chronicle 15, 12 through 15 gives us some background. In it, David tells the Levites, you are the heads 
of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourself and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. He's secure enough to confess his sin because he knows how loved by God he is. He doesn't fear God to the point of dread and despair. Rather, it moves him to worship God even more. And so putting aside his kingly robe, he he wears the clothes of a priest. He dances before God with all his might. And though his wife, Mikkel, despises him for it, claiming he's making a fool of himself before all the people, David stresses that he's doing this for an audience of one. The God who rescued him from her father to make him king. For David, God is worthy of such praise. He says in verses 21 through 22, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. You see, true worship happens when God becomes so great in our eyes that we forget about ourselves. As painful as this football season has been, uh, most of you know I'm a Jet fan. And so every Sunday, for better or worse, I, I try to watch at least a little of some of the games. Uh, one thing my family will tell you, uh, the few times the Jets actually do something good, I will literally jump out of my seat and start yelling like a maniac. In times they don't, I might have a similar reaction. I can't help it. There's just something that's drawn out of me when I'm watching them play. I've, I've even been bad at the stadium, to be honest with you. I find the boys even imitating me a bit in terms of just going crazy for the game. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, I have a personal investment, for better or worse, in these Jets. If we can get that excited about sports or shopping or whatever it may be for you, how much more so does God deserve our praise? Or should others just by looking at us be able to tell that we are fanatics, amazed by what Jesus has done for us? I close wanting you to consider, do you express that kind of excitement for your Savior? Does God get the amount of time and devotion from you? It stands out to people. Does it come out in the way you talk and interact with others? Is worship a part of who you are? David's life changed here when he realized that although he was a king, he was first and foremost a servant of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who deserves all glory and praise. The chorus of Brandon Lake's song, Gratitude, puts it best when it says, so I throw up my hands and praise you again and again, because all that I have is a hallelujah, hallelujah. And I know it's not much, but I have nothing else fit for a king, except for a heart singing, hallelujah, hallelujah. There's only one way that holy God can be approached by sinful men and women the Lord Jesus Christ. And until you come 
low, to lift him up. You can never truly experience his presence in your life. And it's only when we see the holiness of God that we begin to worship. I invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you loved us enough to draw near. You're not a God who stays distant and says, climb up the ladder, try to be good enough, try to work out things on your own. But you're a God who's involved in our lives, a God who moves in our lives, Lord Jesus. And if you didn't move first, we would never move towards you. And I pray that for those out there today who are searching and they are hurting and they are questioning and maybe they're angry, I don't know, you know. I pray that you would minister to their hearts today. I pray even if it was just one word of love and tenderness, even of holiness, of of reverent fear, of good, healthy fear, you'd use it to show them that even though you are God Almighty, they mean something to you. And Lord, that they would give themselves over to you in trust and faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.